Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. You are tuned into 8.55am on 3CR Community Radio with myself, Ayan. Sitting across from me is... Anya. Anya Did and you forget why? My name is that? No, that I happened? just no. I wanted you to do your own little <laughs> Anya, 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 but you know that fell through. Mm. And in the building somewhere is Lauren, who could probably hear us from the mm. um, speaker phones, um, and is probably running down, trying to get something done for the the show. Yeah. Um. So, but she is here. Mm. Um. So how was how was your morning? Oh, sorry, weekend. <laughs> yeah, my weekend was great. I went to that um, Done by Law trivia on Friday, the fundraiser mm-hmm. with Lauren. <laughs> we were supremely bad at trivia, um, but had a lot of fun. So congratulations to the Done by Law team who um, did a great job. Maybe it's time to talk about our own fundraiser. Yes, that's oh happening, my God, which is so exciting. This Saturday? Yes, Saturday at 6 p.m. Mm. So doors open at 5 p.m., uh, 5.30, sorry. It's at Loop Bar, mm. and the documentary is called Life is Waiting, a Culture of Resistance film. Mm. Um, yeah, and there'll be a panel conversation afterwards, and who is On the panel? Yeah. So we've got Kamal Fadel from the Australian um, Western Sahara Association. Mm-hmm. And we've also got... Yes, we've got Tiny and Ernest, who is um, a, a badass feminist activist. Mm. Um, yeah, but she's just somebody who's really plugged in into the community and who we can't wait to hear their thoughts on resistance, sovereignty, and I guess... Basically, anything that's to do with dismantling the system. Mm. So that would be really interesting. Um, all donations will go to making, I guess, 3CR uh, accessible mm. and um, continue, mm. yeah, continue supporting the 3CR breakfast yeah. teams. Which to keep us on air, basically. Keep, basically, like, I'm looking at the lights. We need money for that. <laughs> We need money for this keyboard. We need money for internet connection. Mm. Like that's where all that money is going to. So mm. we do appreciate your support. What mm. what did I get up to this weekend? I don't know. Oh my god, yes, that's it. I went to Acme and I saw um a list of like the movies that I think the movies that were nominated and the movies that won. Mm. Uh Sundance short films. Oh. Yeah, it was really nice. It Good was like you. an hour. That culture. 
you know, it's it's not enough that I have my own culture. I'm, I'm yeah, like I, I think I'm I've got culture coming left and right <laughs> out of my pockets. So. Mm. And here she is, Lauren. <laughs> yes, our next audio is ready to go. <laughs> yes. Oh. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Hope. Mm. Mm. Um, I have a couple of news headlines very quickly, if we have time. Um, all right. World leaders have been told they have a moral obligation to ramp up the action on the climate crisis in the wake of a new UN report that shows even half a degree of extra warming will affect hundreds of millions of people, decimate corals and intensify heat extremes. But the muted response by Britain, Australia and other governments highlights the immense political challenges facing adoption of pathways to the relatively safe limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures outlined on Monday by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. With the report set to be presented at a major climate summit in Poland in December, known as COP24, there is little time for squabbles. The report noted that emissions need to be cut by 45% by 2030 in order to keep warming within 1.5 degrees Celsius. This means decisions have to be taken in the next two years to decommission coal power plants and replace them with renewables because major investments usually have a life cycle of at least a decade. The validity of the safe access zone laws in Victoria and Tasmania that prevent anti-abortion protesters from harassing women seeking medical treatment will be challenged before the High Court today at 9am. The Victorian case has been brought by anti-abortion campaigner Kathleen Club, who was the first person to be convicted of breaking Victoria's safe access zone laws in 2016. The laws mean anti-abortion protesters cannot protest within 150 metres of health and fertility clinics. Club was fined $5,000 for communicating about, about abortion to a woman attending an East Melbourne medical clinic. Club's conduct was found to be reasonably likely to cause distress or anxiety. Christian anti-abortion campaigner Graham Preston was the first person convicted under similar laws in Tasmania and he was fined $3,000 in 2016. Club and Preston are challenging the laws in their respective states, arguing the legislation stifles free speech. Both challenges are being heard before the High Court in Canberra. So this is happening today at 9am, so it'll be really interesting to see what the outcome will be. 36 Indian schoolgirls have been treated in hospital after they were attacked by a large crowd of teenage boys and their parents and they complained of sexual harassment. Six boys and one woman were arrested in the northeastern state of Bihar after the attack at a girls' boarding school. Police and witnesses said girls from the government school in Trivenigunj, about 160 miles east of the state capital Patna, had been playing in a sports area on Saturday night when a group of teenage boys began making lewd comments. The girls argued back and some physically remonstrated with the teenage boys who initially backed off. Police say a group of the boys and some of their parents returned about 20 minutes later carrying bamboo sticks and iron rods. The girls admitted to hospital were aged between 10 and 14. Most of the injured children were discharged from hospital and returned to the school accommodation. A local official said many of the girls were shaken and feared further violence. Wow. Well, we might just go straight to our pre-record now mm. um, because it is a little bit longer. Um, this was done by Hope, who is a former Tuesday Breakfast producer and broadcaster. Still producer, I would say. Still gives us some content. Um, and I 
Um, I don't have my email has just logged me out of it, but um, Hope is also a member of the organisation um, Vahan, which is about to be um, yeah. f- focused on in this piece. So we'll jump straight in. Thank you, Hope. So with us on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, we have Dr. Chris Lamont, an infectious disease physician at Monash Health and president of the Victorian African Health Action Network, or VAHAN. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Hi, Hope. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about uh, who you are and what you do? So I'm a Sierra Leonean Australian. I'm an infectious diseases physician. I work at Monash Health, which is one of the larger public health um, hospital networks in Melbourne, down in the southeast, and I'm also yeah, president of the Victorian African Health Action Network, or VAHAN, which is a community-led group um, aiming to mobilise African-Australian people in the response to HIV in Australia. You recently attended the Australasian HIV and AIDS conference and gave a keynote uh, address called Unlearn, sharing your thoughts on who is left out of the current HIV response. Can you expand a bit on your thoughts for our listeners? The HIV response in Australia has been very successful and uh, we have one of the smaller epidemics in the world and it's fairly concentrated in um, the parts of the population rather than generalised across the um, population. And we've been quite good at limiting the number of new infections, diagnosing people reasonably early and getting people onto treatment that helps them live longer lives and stay well. And that's been founded on a really strong relationship between the um, affected communities and the health professions, researchers and government. Sort of people call it the HIV partnership and that's been a sort of fundamental to what Australia's done. Um, unfortunately, the gains have not been spread evenly and there are some people who do seem to be left out. So, so to t- take it back, when I came back to Australia in 1987, um, HIV was basically a death sentence. It was AIDS middle of the AIDS epidemic, the Grim Reaper was on the television and um, there wasn't really effective treatment at that time and people who got HIV developed AIDS and died. Um, Over the years, treatment has become much more effective and so now if someone's diagnosed early and they're young, they have a normal life expectancy, they can live, you know, as long as anybody else, um, stay well and, uh, you know, have healthy children and, and, um, and all the rest of it. There is a lot of stigma still that affects people with HIV and that's probably one of the major um, the major concerns but most people living with HIV now can live to a ripe old age. The number of new diagnoses is about a thousand a year and that's been more or less steady for the last few years and um, most people are diagnosed at a, before they become unwell and almost everybody who's diagnosed is put on treatment that's really effective. There have been some concerning uh, just divergences there though so the main one is in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, where the rate of diagnoses has actually gone up over the last few years. So it's people who are from an Indigenous background in Australia now start um, being diagnosed with HIV at a rate that's more than twice that of non-Indigenous uh, people in Australia. You know, while everybody else, has, the rate has gone down, that has actually gone up. Um, also, people who are diagnosed late are more likely to come from uh, backgrounds in Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia and Central America and South America. And because the HIV epidemic in Australia has been concentrated mainly in gay and bisexual men, People who don't fit into that risk profile don't get tested um, as often and are more likely to be diagnosed late so that if you got HIV through heterosexual contact, 
um, you're, you know, about half of the people in that situation are actually diagnosed quite late mm. rather than, you know, before they you know, have a chance to um, pre- you know, prevent that damage to the immune system. Um, and indeed, there was an article um, in The Guardian maybe a week or two ago saying um, that the rise, there's been a, an increase in diagnoses of HIV in um, heterosexual men. Yeah, so the the way things pan out across the country is not quite even. So the groups of people where new diagnoses are rising, apart from Indigenous people, are heterosexual men, Australian-born men who travel. Mm. Um, so usually mainly to Asia. Um, so and it's more, the trend is most marked in Western Australia. So there's uh, quite a high proportion of people in Western Australia who have been diagnosed with HIV recently are men who have travelled elsewhere and been exposed at some stage. Um, and also people who were uh, born born overseas mm. are still diagnosed at a higher rate than Australian-born, mainly because the rates of HIV in many parts of the world, in particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, but also in um, parts of Asia, are higher than Australia. So there's just a generally higher chance that someone might be exposed, even though the overall prevalence in pretty much all groups uh, in Australia is very low. And on top of that, uh, you might have some factors that then impact on, on people being able to receive the diagnosis or help that they need in terms of like some political and or social determinants of health. Um, can you uh, expand more a bit on this? Uh, so the analogy that I would use is um, man-spreading. Mm. So you get a, a dominant group. Um, I guess most of the efforts to improve the situation um, of people are directed towards that dominant group. Now, in, in the Australian HIV epidemic, that is white gay men, basically, because it's the bulk of the epidemic in Australia. And it's fair enough that you know most of the resources should be developed there, uh, directed there. But what's happened is that pretty much all of the resources have been developed, uh, directed there, and everyone else has been kind of left out. So um, Asian gay men have not been receiving the same amount of um, prevention messages that you know, white gay men have been receiving. And the rate of diagnosis in Asian gay men in Australia is going up, um, whereas the overall rate for gay men in Australia is going down. People from culturally diverse backgrounds, so the African or Asian, um, most of the HIV prevention messages, such as they are in Australia, are not directed towards people from diverse cultural backgrounds. And people don't even know it's on the radar. So one of the things that... I did some research a few years ago on HIV in African communities, and one of the things that was really striking is that people who came from parts of Africa where there was quite high rates of HIV were very used to seeing it in the public eye, on billboards, on TV, and it being talked about. When they came to Australia, there's nothing. Uh, basically, it was once they were in Australia, HIV seemed to be either not present at all in their minds, or it was restricted to gay men, or it was something that was overseas. And mm. so people, you know, have other things in their lives to deal with, so they forgot about it. Um, and so when people have been exposed to HIV, they may not recognise that that's occurred, and they may not ask for a test from their doctor. And if their doctor is not really um, aware that the person could be at risk, then they won't offer the test either. And sometimes people don't get uh, tested until they fall ill from one of the complications of HIV. Uh, That's really interesting because, um, 
you know, coming from a high-prevalence country myself, South Africa, where I was exposed to this kind of information, um, especially from, from a young age compared to now where I always have to seek it out, it's really a great thing um, to see you doing uh, this kind of advocacy and um, an empowerment work for the Victorian African-Australian communities um, through Vahan. And I can imagine other people being in a similar position to myself. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the kind of work that you do with African-Australian communities? So what we're trying to do is to engage with different community groups um, from African communities, but also um, engaged with uh, other affected communities in Australia who are already involved, actively involved with the HIV response and try and get African Australians to have a voice that is comparable to other groups who are, you know, really giving solid input into policy, giving critique on service delivery um, and actually giving some uh, nuance to the public health messages that are being put out so that they're not, you know, increasing stigma and discrimination. So, for example, with um, gay men, there's been a lot of work done to make sure that the messaging is not homophobic, uh, you know, implicitly homophobic as well as explicitly, and that, um, you know, criminal laws which apply to homosexuality are being addressed and hopefully repealed um, so that the stigma that uh, affects people's ability to find out about their HIV status and to live well with HIV, that that stigma is addressed and that systematic discrimination is, is removed. So really trying to get um, uh, African-Australian people to have a similar vocal presence in the HIV response so that, you know, the racist media that we see, those stereotypes of people, you know, black men infecting white, white Australian women, all of that sort of rubbish isn't left to go unchallenged. That, um, you know, uh, discriminatory um, regulations around access to treatment for people who don't have Medicare uh, are removed so that people are not struggling to, you know, find roundabout ways of getting medication because they don't happen to have a Medicare card. Um, you know, and it's a small number of people, but it really affects their lives very badly. So trying to get some real input into policy and uh, make sure that the advances which Australia has made around HIV are shared evenly amongst all people. Yeah, that's that's really um that's really great. And I guess, you know, one of the biggest differences that I also see is that in Africa, I guess things are more community controlled and led. Um yeah, it's interesting because many people would argue, I mean, I would be one of them that in Australia it's also community led and um controlled. It's just that which community. Mm. So not all communities are equal. Um and uh, unfortunately, African-Australian communities are one of the groups that has been left out of the HIV response mm. um, because there isn't any organised body to articulate concerns. Um, there are a lot of people talking on our behalf. So there are health promotion agencies who are funded to raise awareness of HIV in culturally diverse communities. Um, and there are individual um, services and you know clinical people who, who work with um, people from African backgrounds and advocate on their behalf. But there isn't really any African-Australian group which speaks out for us, you know, with our own voice. You know, as um, you know, to give some real input um, into particularly the way policy is made and what the way uh, strategies are made and some of the language that's used mm. is quite um, stigmatising. It's labelling people as problems and, you know, almost like threats to the, the wider community instead mm. of actually looking at it from a a fairness point of view and saying that everybody needs to get the benefits of, you know, the
the you know treatment and prevention resources available in a rich country like Australia. And I guess uh, this is where the very important work of the Victorian African Health Action Network, or VAHAN, comes in as well, uh, because you do have a few things lined up in terms of getting not only the African-Australian community to come together, but also African-Australian health professionals who work in the area of um, STIs and blood-borne viruses. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about uh, where people can go to keep themselves engaged with the conversations VAHAN is Starting? Sure. So um, we, we do have a website. Um, it's uh, vahan.com.au. Um, so that's, uh, you can find that and get some information about us. What we've co- coming up in December, so 1st of December is World AIDS Day, and there is a, um, an event on the Saturday, the 1st of December, a community forum which we're holding in Footscray um, and inviting uh, African-Australian people um, who are interested in learning more about HIV and also doing more uh, about HIV uh, to come and, and just meet, discuss the issues and really try and get a, um, a bit of momentum going so that we can engage and, and do our bit. Yes, definitely. And um, because Vahan is, is not, prof- not for profit, you, you are all made up of um, health professionals with day jobs. I've seen a bit of a crowdfunding doing the rounds. Yes, so we are... Um we're not a funded organisation, so we don't have any government funding currently or any other funding for that matter. Um, so we are asking um, for people to support us to put this forum on. Um, we've got a GoFundMe appeal. Um, so if you go to GoFundMe and search for Vahan, V-A-H-A-N, um, you can find us and uh, help support. But the most important thing is to actually come along and um, join your voice and Join the conversation, not, not to be lectured about, you know, how to use condoms, um, but just to really look at what the issues are that the social issues, the political issues, as well as the biomedical issues that put people at risk of HIV, make it hard for them to find out their status, and also it produced the stigma and discrimination that makes it hard to live well with HIV, and um, try and get some, um, you know, a real community voice to join with other community voices in Australia and and put us all on the even footing. Well, great. Uh, thank you so much, Chris. We'll have all of those details um, up on uh, 3CR Tuesday Breakfast page later on today for everyone to be able to access and see all of the wonderful work that uh, Vahan continues to do. Thank you so much for speaking with us on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Thanks, Hope. Thanks for having me on. And if you're just tuning in to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, I was speaking with Dr. Chris Lemont, an infectious disease physician at Monash Health and president of the Victorian African Health Action Network. World Mental Health Day 2018 is coming up on October 10th. This year, the World Health Organization's theme is Young People and Mental Health in a Changing World. Talking about what it means to grow up in today's society and how to build mental resilience to cope with pressures. To celebrate on Brainwaves, we want to hear from you. Send in your stories about what resilience and mental health means to you. Head to brainwaves.org.au to find out more and submit your story. Tune into 3CR Community Radio on Wednesday the 10th of October at 5pm to hear our special Mental Health Week edition of Brainwaves. Or listen to the podcast on the 3CR website. Brainwaves, 
Hear the world differently. Proudly sponsored by Rollways Australia. Join 3CR's breakfast teams at our annual film fundraiser on Saturday, October 13th. At Loop Project Space and Bar. 23 Myers Place, Nam. And we'll be screening the film Life is Waiting, looking at referendum and resistance in Western Sahara, followed by a post-show live panel discussion featuring Kamal Fadel from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Now, tickets are a good $15 for the waged and $5 unwaged at the door, so... Come along, have a bit of fun. All proceeds go to Keeping Breakfast Programming on air as 3CR, so you can keep hearing these beautiful voices we have at our radio station. And that, again, will be on Saturday, the 13th of October from 5 p.m. Film starts at 6, um, preferably show up by 5.30, and hopefully to see you all lovely people there. Well, I love 3CR, and so I'm going to definitely be there. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, Lauren and myself, Anya. We have a song for you next. It's from one of, uh, one of Tuesday favourites. Um, no, actually, my mm-hmm. favourite. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called <laughs> Yoga by Janelle Monet. Tilda, Melbourne's Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival is launching its 2018 programme on October the 11th. The program runs from Thursday the 8th to Sunday the 11th of November at Footscray Community Arts Centre and celebrates the best trans and gender diverse cinema on offer along with Q&A sessions with festival guests and opening and closing night events. Program details and tickets are available at tildamelbourne.com A 3CR supporter. Spring into Gardening is back this October. Hosted by Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiatis, celebrating sustainability and all things green for one day only. Featuring free workshops and demonstrations, hands-on kids' activities and market stalls to help with planting and preparing your garden for summer. Spring into Gardening, Sunday, October the 14th at Victoria Gardens, Paran. Go to stonington.vic.gov.au for more details. A 3CR supporter. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Next up, we have Dr. Kate Ford, who's the general manager from Queer Space, which is part of Drummond Street Services. So we do a, um, a monthly slot with Queer Space where they come on to talk about <clears throat> their programs and, and the services that they offer. So we're very excited to have Kate with us today. Thank you for joining us today, Kate. Hi, Anya. How are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Very good. Um, let's jump in. So you're here to talk to us about the I Heal program. What is that about? Yeah, okay. So the I Heal program um, came out of a recommendation from the Royal Commission into Family Violence, which had many recommendations, which the Victorian government is um, and is implementing all of them. And this was an acknowledgement that um, family violence services uh, need to be more than just crisis-oriented because people... Um, need those services basically at all point, points along the kind of journey in recovery from family violence as well. Mm. So the iHeal program is a is a recovery oriented um, program, um, and it the program also acknowledges I think that um, trauma is a big um, product of family violence, and so it it can't just be a short 
service. And so the iHeal program accompanies people in their journey of recovery and, mm. you know, quite a long way in that journey. Mm. So that, that was kind of the impetus for it. Yeah. And how does the program work? Um, so clients who've experienced um, several different forms of violence, so it could be family violence, it could be intimate partner violence. And for queer community, we also include in it um, lateral violence because that, that um, can be, you know, situations where say households are together and they're experiencing violence amongst them. And the, the, the clients have to be post-crisis. So what that means basically is they have to be past the point where there's a kind of lethal danger or where they're actually needing police intervention, which is, you know, mm. because we're not a crisis service in that way. You know, you know we can't, we're not 24-7, mm. seven days a week. Um, and then the, the clients are paired with, with um, a counsellor who acts as a case coordinator and what we call a recovery support worker, which is um, somebody who is a, a peer worker, so somebody who's been through something of that experience themselves. Um, and, and that person is there to sort of accompany the person on their journey of recovery and help them with really basic kind of nuts and bolts aspects of rebuilding a life after those kinds of devastating experiences. Mm. Can you expand on that a little bit? Why, why is peer support from someone with lived experience important in the process of recovery? Yeah, well, I think in queer space in general, what we experience is that people want to um, work with um, counsellors or caseworkers who recognise their experience and that that is um, that's often because in, in mainstream or in places where um, people haven't had those experiences, it's very alienating to come in and say, well, this is who I am and people say, oh, well, you know, I don't recognise that or I don't value that. Mm-hmm. And so we see peer support as, a, as one and only one really important component of um, giving people a sense of our service recognising them where they're at and in their own um, personhood and in their own experience. So Mm. um, peer support is really important for that reason, but it's also really important because peer support, um, people who um, do those jobs are often um, really they're the backbone of communities that often do that work for little or no pay. So I I think the... the, um, integration of, of peer support workers into a workforce is an acknowledgement they, that they have a really particular kind of knowledge mm-hmm. to bring mm-hmm. and, and experience, but also they need something from the workforce as well. Mm-hmm. They need recognition and they need that place and that that uh, contribution to be valued. And so that's basically the, the two reasons, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of emphasis on lived experience in service deli- delivery, both in the iHeal program and in generally queer space. And, yeah. you know, that's really fantastic and seems to be a concept that organisations in the community and social service space nowadays try to embody. Yeah. Um, could you maybe expand on that and talk about, firstly, the importance um, of lived experience in service delivery generally and secondly yep. how organizations can do that safely and respectfully without it being a buzzword or a tokenistic approach yeah yeah um so i think like in general queer space is what we refer to as a lived experience workforce and that's that's basically to say that we're providing services by queer identified staff to queer identified clients and their families and um and loved ones so it's it's to say that what we recognise is that that sort of lived experience gives you an idea of how um, 
how anyone who's queer identified is kind of positioned by mainstream. And often, um, I mean, and so we often have clients who say to us, you know, they went to see somebody in a mainstream service and, you know, the person was just really curious about, say, the fact that they were trans. So then they have to explain and or they feel that burden to explain when they don't want to explain. And, you know, there's a whole lot of alienation that happens there. So there's a recognition in a lived experience workforce, I think, that we, we just meet the client where they where they are and we don't... Um, we don't sort of either pathologize or kind of trivialize or fetishize mm. their, their difference. And so that that's a really big part of what lived experience brings to any kind of service delivery, I think. Mm. And like, I really agree with you that they're kind of, um, it's often been done quite badly. And that's, I think, because there's a kind of underestimation of, um, of the questions and processes of integrating a peer support workforce into um, the rest of the workforce. And so what we did was, um, because I Heal is a family violence, intimate partner violence program, the people, the recovery support workers have had something of those experiences. Mm. So what we recognise is that, therefore, there are certain things that they may need as part of their workforce um, development. Mm. So we trained, we gave them six months training a certificate for in community services. So mm. that if they don't want to work in this area anymore, ever, mm. <laughs> then they've got an employment pathway um, out of it. And that was a very deliberate decision to give them a sense of um, uh, producing a future because that's often the other thing that happens with people who've had traumatic experiences or, and this is common in queer as well, mm. um, the sense of a deprivation of a future caused by, um, uh, you know, an mm. anticipated future caused by the trauma that they've experienced. Mm. So that's what we're trying to do is put that in place mm. and then integrate them into the team so they're fully integrated into the queer space team mm. and they're given... Um, uh, the, say every client is given a recovery support worker and what we call a case coordinator, but that person could be um, coordinating the case work that the recovery support worker does, but also providing counselling to the client as well, mm. so that then and supervision to the recovery support worker, so that they're supported in every aspect of the work to develop the skills that they need to become, you know, part of the workforce in whatever direction they choose to go in after that. Mm-hmm. And that's our way of um, trying to say we recognise the skills and abilities and we recognise that, with, like, as with all of us, you know, we've all got development needs, so we just try and meet people um, where they're at and, and um, put those in place. Um, so, yeah, those are the main ways, but, yeah, it's a, very, it's a big question. <laughs> mm. But you've answered it really, really well. Um, I think, yeah, with, the, um, with providing the recovery support workers with training, it mm. sounds to me like that's also part of the recovery process for themselves as well Absolutely, to make their yeah. lived experience, um, you know, in, into something that's, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, this iHeal program, does it have any eligibility criteria? Um, it, it does. Um, it's part of, um, Queerspace provides, uh, has, out of, out of the Royal Commission as well, Queerspace has been funded to, um, prov- provide services from prevention, early intervention through crisis and recovery mm. to people who have experienced intimate partner violence or family violence. So, IHEAL does have specific criteria, which is you need to be kind of at the beginning of or having decided to embark on the recovery 
journey. So that's mm-hmm. sort of post-crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a kind of decision that happens at intake. And really anybody who's experiencing these things and who is queer-identified or lives with queer community is is eligible for these programs. Mm-hmm. And then we just make that decision at intake where, where the people are at the recovery point where the, where the recovery support worker will be part of the... Um, the work we do with them or whether it, it, it's sort of prior to that and we're doing a sort of more counselling intervention, etc. Mm. So what we do is a pretty comprehensive intake when people um, get in touch with our intake um, team, we sort of go through all the issues with them and, and do a kind of co- quite a comprehensive assessment, mm. including sort of, you know, working out where the risk is mm. um, in order to work out at, at what point we will put our eye heal worker in place. Mm, okay. Um, and how can listeners contact Queerspace? Um, well, there's uh, a bunch of different ways. Um, they can ring 1-800-LGBTIQ. Uh, they can email um, intake at ds.org.au or um, you can go to the Drummond Street website where you'll be able to... Um, click on an um, intake form and you can fill that in online and then someone from the intake team uh, will get back to you. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kate. Thanks, Anya. No problem. Lovely to talk to you. Friends of the Earth's Walk This Way is back. Join us on Saturday, October 13th on a sponsored walk of Melbourne's beautiful Bayside Tracks to launch our new waste and consumption campaign and take action on climate change. Together, we'll walk 15 kilometres and raise $20,000 for Friends of the Earth. We will be highlighting key issues around climate resilience, rising sea levels and plastic pollution in our oceans. Getting involved is simple. Sign up online at walkthisway.org.au. Get sponsored, spread the word and get walking. Join us as we journey through coastal communities who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. We'll finish up with a community picnic in the Katani Gardens in St Kilda. Friends of the Earth is a proud supporter of CCR. Have you been a patient at Monash Health? Then we need your help. Because we care for patients from so many countries speaking so many different languages, we need your help to make the patient experience better. To make a real difference, register to be a consumer advisor. Visit the Monash Health website, monashhealth.org. Monash Health is a 3CR supporter. Welcome. Oh, goodness. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Um, and we just wanted to let you know that if the previous segment with Queer Space um, raised anything um, upsetting or distressing for you, you can give Lifeline a call on 131114. And now we are going to jump into some alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't.
that wonderful time of the week again. So today we wanted to talk about um, early childhood education funding. So there is a lot of concern kind of flying around at the moment about kinder and yeah early childhood education funding. Uh, it's looking like it's going to be a significant issue in the federal election. And so we wanted to take a bit of a look at what's actually going on um, and maybe try and position it in um, the gendered space in which it exists. So Labor, the Australian Labor Party, have released details of a new policy which would permanently grant universal access to preschool or kinder for three and four-year-olds for 600 hours a year, which is about 15 hours a week, so two full days pretty much. This is estimated to cost about $9.8 billion over 10 years. Um, Side note, I'm pretty sure they said that they were going to get that money um, from negative gearing somehow, so anyway. Uh, at the moment, the federal government provides five hours of kindergarten for four, for four-year-olds every week, um, and then the states provide a bit on top of that. So the split is pretty much that the federal government funds one-third of early childhood education for four-year-olds, and the states fund two-thirds. So this current arrangement, though, is only secured until the end of 2019, and Scott Morrison hasn't made any commitment to securing it beyond that which is obviously causing a lot of concern for parents of young children. And one Twitter user that we spotted um, named Victoria Rawlinson tweeted that if that funding is lost or if it's not secured beyond 2019, it will cost her family $5,000 a year per child, which is huge. So Morrison and the Education Minister Dan Tien have told media that they're concerned about people having to pay more tax in order to increase early childhood education funding, um, which we do note is particularly interesting in the middle of this rebranding of Scott Morrison as the Daggy Dad. Um, and The Guardian have reported that only 57% of Australia's three-year-olds were in long daycare or preschool, and just 15% were in preschool, compared with the OECD average of 78%. So only 15% in preschool compared with the average in other comparable nations of 78%. That is so stark. It's also reported that France, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, Norway and Ireland all have universal early childhood education for three and four-year-olds, with the UK moving towards 30 hours a week, even in a time of austerity, I will point out, which is double the ALP's offering of 15 hours. Um, so I think there's a lot there... There's a lot going on there. Um, some people have been asking whether the ALP's funding will extend to education aids for kids with disabilities. Um, and I was thinking about this yesterday, Ayan, um, as I was listening to your recent Accent of Women episode um, about the gendered nature of early childhood education and service, um, sort of those kinds of work um, and how undervalued they are in a... You know, they're underpaid because they're undervalued in that sense. But I was wondering, I mean, I was sort of thinking about it and it's crazy that we also seem to undervalue the education itself for kids. Mm. It's like, you know, university, we can see you get a diploma or a degree or whatever at the end of it. High school, you like, quote unquote, achieve something in a capitalist sense. But Mm. early childhood education, like, doesn't seem to have that, like, financially measurable outcome so so what, it's not important, or I don't know, what do you guys think? Yeah, there's an article um, that I was having a read last night, it's called Research Shows There Are Benefits From Getting More Three-Year-Olds Into Preschool, and Mm. they were talking about how it makes sense on two levels, the first level is that, um, sorry, so 
well, the, well, the main level that I um, that struck a chord with me is the economic benefits of it. Like, it makes sense to invest in children and invest in their education because educated children or children who have a good head start in life will make, you know, will, will be able to contribute to society financially. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like a preventative measure. You get them when they're young. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you give them the right tools. Um, you know, it's like you're giving them um, a better chance of succeeding in life. And isn't that beneficial? Like, mm. it makes economic sense and it makes sense um, as a community as well. We want healthy um, adults and healthy mm. adults start by investing in healthy children. Um, but, yeah, so it's just interesting because I didn't know that it was only – so before – so hopefully once this funding does go – um, you know, goes into law, becomes the thing. Mm. So, okay, so if the if Labor win and um, this funding is approved, I had no idea that it was. They were prior to this, they were only funding four-year-olds. Mm. So they were funding one year before you start school. But these readings that I've done, they say that it makes sense to fund, um, like two years. That two years is a, is is a good amount of number to start putting, you know, resources into mm. kids because one year is not enough to... to no, um, and then heaps of kids, kids end up ready, starting yeah. school at six because, like you say, they're not ready. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. if you if you get them when they're three instead of just, like, four, turning five or whatever the age is, it makes better sense mm. because, you know, you've done all this work where the teachers don't feel like they're catching the student up. The student will sort of be a bit more prepared, which is good. Yeah. And the funding also will support, because I know you mentioned with, um, in terms of disability, but it's also um, funds things like, um, uh, what's, what was it called? Uh, literacy, um, speech development. You know, there's all these, like, mm. support services that kindergartens can put into use. Mm-hmm. And is this funding, is there a split? Because um, I don't know how the system works here, between private and public funded. Is that a thing? Are there private kinder or preschool there's not, programs? So there's not public kinder in the same way that there's public school. Oh. So to my knowledge, as far as I understand it anyway, this, um, all childcare is, most childcare is <clears throat> at least partially government subsidised. Right. And then some of it is actually funded, but there's not like, there are some community childcare places, Mm. but they're not necessarily provided with the early childhood educators that formal kindergartens are. Mm. Um, Yeah, which is why this funding is so important because it's mandatory that in every kindergarten there are early childhood educators. Mm. Mm. So it's especially important for people who can't afford. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and that impacts on, on the education that they receive and then further impacts on, on their life. Totally. Mm. I mean, two days a week of not having to pay for your child to be in care mm. so that you can work or rest mm. or do whatever it is that you need to do. I mean, that's huge. That is huge. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically, Chronically Chilled. Chilled. 
a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. And that was Black and Deadly by The Last, uh, the last Connection. Connection with uh, a K, not a C. <laughs> you look so cute right now. We need this 3CR Instagram account so I can show people how, how you look. So on the line with us now, we have Jeremy Poxon, who is the media officer for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Thank you for joining us this morning, Jeremy. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No worries. So let's start with what the hell is going on for un- and underemployed workers in Australia at the moment? Um, too much, sadly. So mm-hmm. the latest um, uh, reform the government uh, put through is really targeting sort of older uh, job seekers. And we've seen a bunch of um, new data emerge that actually the fastest growing population on new start, fastest growing demographic is like 50 plus. Uh, job seekers. So, um, you know, coincidentally enough, the government's brought in new reforms where by um, pe- people on start who are over 60 uh, now have to do um, you know, 10 hours a fortnight um, of obligation activity uh, to keep their new start. Uh, job seekers over 50 um, now have to do an extra 10 hours uh, from, from what they already have to do. Um, so, yeah, through our advocacy line, we've been getting, as you might imagine, um, a lot of worried calls um, from older job seekers who are really, you know, people who are, you know, locked out of the labour market. It's that real sort of, you know, that point between sort of being 60 and, and you know, and still being too young uh, to access the attention, but sort of going through the ringer um, of New Start for a few years where there's really little chance of being able to find um, find a job. Mm. before you retire. So um, that's, that's probably um, the latest. And then um, we've been sort of busy. We managed to trigger a Senate inquiry into Job Active. Yes, I saw that. Great work. Uh, punitive employment services system. So um, with the help of Rachel Stewart from the Greens, um, so we've been busily uh, trying to um, get all our members and as many unemployed people as possible uh, to submit um, their stories, their criticism, their feedback um, to the Senate, which is a really powerfully rare opportunity for people who don't often get listened to um, in Canberra, sort of low-income, uh, poor uh, welfare recipients. So this is sort of the, you know, the, the first time really that in the last 20 years this privatised employment system has had a real uh, high-level uh, microscope on it. And so what are you hoping that the um, Senate inquiry looks at specifically? So, yeah, we're, we're you know, we're, we're hoping, um, you know, the experiences of unemployed people within the system um, are, are looked at uh, from people in positions of power, finally. Um, you know, we're hoping, you know, the, the stuff we've, we've heard um, for the last five years finally um, gets an airing, and this is... Um, you know, from uh, job seekers who are getting crushed um, under all the um, compliance measures, um, job active the system which is imposed um, 
since it was established in, in 2015, it's imposed over 5 million penalties um, on job seekers. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the damage, we're hoping the damage that, that causes um, to people has an airing. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're hoping uh, this is uh, what we believe the system to be um, really comes to light, where it's a system that sort of forces um, you know, unemployed people through all sorts of arduous measures and obligations that they don't really want to comply with, but are forced to comply with under this sort of threat yeah. uh, of, of punishment. Such an interesting time to have this inquiry. I mean, the you know the cashless welfare debit card um, and the CDP and all of these things that are mm. churning up a lot of community discontent. And then we obviously had the robo debt just complete disaster but then i guess we have this super conservative anti-welfare recipient government so it's this really interesting oh and then the unions are thrown in there with their rising membership um i think yep. it's, it's almost the perfect time really to have this inquiry it seems like yeah and you know there's especially um after the and i think you can throw in there is the you know, Banking Royal Commission, right? Mm, um, yeah. And so, and and there's very, you know, there's similar parallels. Um, you know, this is another sort of um, privatized employment services industry. So it's it's the 1.3 billion dollar per year industry. Yet our, I mean, Australia's unemployed people are the second poorest unemployed population um, in the OECD. Uh, and there's no independent regulator um, of this privatised system, so you know, job agents, the agencies within, really given you know uh, free reign and even more free reign to sort of uh, punish job seekers and really exploit them for for profit. So, and of course, similarly to the Banking Royal Commission, the coalition uh, you know see nothing wrong um, with this industry, but I suspect after the inquiry, they're going to sort of change their shoes similarly as they have um, after all the evils of the you know, Banking Royal Commission have come out. Mm. Um, let's talk about your recent trip to South Australia with the AUWU. What were you guys doing there and what did you, um, what did you uncover? Yeah, so, I, um, so something with, you know, as you sort of flagged earlier, we've been really um, wanting to... Uh, increase our advocacy around uh, the cashless cashless debit card, um, the CDC or the Inju card, some people call it. Um, so we decided to go out to travel out to Sejuna, um in Western South Australia. So I flew to flew to Adelaide and, and packed myself in a van with other um, social security uh, recipients because we've heard Sejuna, uh, for those who don't know, was the very first um, cashless debit card. Uh, trial site, um, you know, whereby every uh, welfare recipient um, in the town uh, gets put on a special uh, debit card that quarantines uh, 80% of their income, so they're left with 20% of their new start or whatever it is in cash uh, to be able to spend. So, you know, and we've heard, you know, over the years, um, you know, Plenty of stories from people on the cards. We've read the data. Uh, we know, you know, we sort of uh, knew theoretically a bit more abstractly um, 
you know, that this thing was punitive, that it was causing more damage to communities than actually helping, that it was patronizing, that it targeted indigenous communities unfairly. Um, but the rhetoric from um, the mayor in towns like, in towns like Saduna, the rhetoric from our human and social services ministers uh, has always been, look, we're going to continue the trial as long as it has community support. Um, the, you know, every every politician on that side we talked to would claim the card had community support. So we decided to sort of test that theory and pack ourselves in a van and like head out there and survey um, a bunch of people um, to test this theory um, that it had wide community support. Um, and being in Seduta, and we talked to dozens of people, not just people on the card, but you know, local businesses. Um, we talked to the people who were responsible for rolling out the card um, there back in back in 20, 2015. Um, and we got a wide diversity of opinion, but definitely the idea that there was any kind of community census, <laughs> consensus that, that it was a overall positive thing was, was, was pretty much bubkiss, mm. if anything. From the, from the data we got, which we're currently writing up in a report, uh, that you know, people, even people who see some positives in the card, um, you know, flag huge problems uh, with it, which, um, you know, the local government there or the federal government broadly just aren't um, mentioning at all. Mm. Yeah, it seems like the, um, the little that I um, did follow, I mean, I followed everything that you were posting, obviously, because Tuesday Breakfast is very interested in this. But um, the the bits that you were able to post while you were on the move, um, it seems like in day to day life, it's just it can just be so impractical and then really limiting for people, um, just in their in just buying essentials and living lives that we sort of take for granted when we're not on this um, injury. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's something that. Yeah, that was one of the real eye-opening things about the trip because I'd, I'd sort of be there, you know, there for a week and, and you know, I'd sort of hang out with, you know, cashless card recipients as they went about their day and sort of understand a bit more like firsthand um, what it was like. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a deeply anxious, anxiety-inducing, um, stigmatic mm. uh, you know, thing to have to rely on, like, you know, I follow... Um, you know, somebody try to, trying to use it um, in a shop, and it's a very faulty thing um, that, you know, that only works. Um, you know, this, this woman, I tried to tried to help her, you know, buy groceries, and it took her like five or six goes mm-hmm. to get it through, and she said, yeah, this happens all the time, and she always feels ashamed having to use the card in a, in a, in a supermarket because, you know, you sort of, um, you know, you're very clearly not one of the, you know, not one of the wealthy or mm. you know, scare quotes normal to do the residents. There's also a, a very sad um, sort of feeling in the town generally. Saduna's big annual event is, you know, they're famous for their oysters out there. So um, when we were there, we were leading into the the oyster festival, and that's one of those events that's like a, you know, a sort of a cash, you know. You know, one of those sort of, you know, old, old style country sort of festivals, you know, where you, you need a bunch of cash to mm-hmm. sort of get in and go to the stalls and that kind of thing. Nobody on the, on the, on the cashless welfare card, um, will be going, um, to that event because they, they don't have, um, enough access to actual, you know, paper money, um, 
to to get in. So just just being there and sort of witnessing little things like that, which really um, sort of highlighted the, the actual like social division, and it's actually <laughs> excluding um, the you know the very poorest, the most disadvantaged mm. um, from society, from society even further. Just talking to talking to Indigenous mothers as well, who you know, sort of lamented not being able to. Um, you know, give their kids any, any cash to, to take to school or to go to a carnival or, you know, to, mm. go, to go away on sort of a footy trip and that kind of thing. So, yeah, those, yeah, you're right. Those little sort of, you know, really like heartbreaking um, yeah. uh, and, and, and crushing on a day-to-day level. Well, we look forward to reading the report when it's out and um, and learning more about the impact of it as the AUW keeps doing their outreach and advocacy, because I'm sure we're just going to keep hearing stories about it. Yeah, and it's, mm. and it's just been, um, sadly, uh, it got through the Senate by one vote, thanks to mm. Dora, um, now being introduced into, into Queensland, um, so the Bundaberg um, area, I've got a cashless debit card, so that, that takes the number up to 15,000 Australians now nationwide um, are on this. Yeah. Card. And the other thing I should mention, I'll do it quickly, is the other reason why we're trying to amp up our advocacy on this is because we've seen, um, you know, we've seen that uh, the National, for instance, have articulated a plan to get every Australian under 35 on welfare on one of these cards. Um, we've seen, um, uh, we've seen whispering um, that the uh, L&T has sort of articulated an, an idea where they want every Australian under 18 uh, on the dole on one of these cards. So this is a real sort of long-term, even though they're trialling it out of these sort of remote communities, this is a really long-term <laughs> project, yeah. um, you know, for the conservative wing. But, you know, ideally they want all of us on this card. So we figure if we don't go out there and, and try to cut this, you know, snake's head off, Absolutely. Um, it's going to end up everywhere. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all your hard work on it, and um, and we'll speak, speak to you again soon for more of an update. Awesome. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Jeremy. you got to remember, Nainop's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am... NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's um, about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. There's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped. Sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe.
Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We are joined now live in the studio, you know we love a live in the studio guest, by Dr. Jordana Silverstein, who is a historian, an academic, I don't know if I can say what uni you're at, so I'm just going to say academic. And I, you can, no, you can say what uni I'm at. Okay, the <laughs> University of Melbourne. Um, and as well as all of that, a Jewish woman mm-hmm. who joins us today to talk about many things. I think maybe we can just jump straight into that. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on. No, thanks for coming. Um, So, as I mentioned, you are a woman of Jewish faith. What is your cultural or familial sort of background like? Sure. So, um, my family came here as refugees and migrants. So, my mum's parents were, and her brother, well, her mum's parents were Holocaust survivors and her brother was born in a DP camp in Germany after the war. And she was born here and they migrated here and, and lived in Carlton when they first came. So they're Polish Jews and, and I guess of kind of middling religious practice. They attend synagogue, they kept kosher. Um, that was something, their Jewishness was important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad's family are British Jews or they were Lithuanian before then, Russian. Um, and yeah, he was born in Belfast and, and he migrated here from Canada in his teens. Mm. Um, so I guess we kind of have that mix of it being a, a it's an ethnic identity, it's a racialized identity, it's uh, political, it's religious, mm. um, it's I guess a big part of who I am. It's a, my work. I, I become, you know, I, I write about the Holocaust. I write about Jewish memory. I write about histories of Jewish sexuality. Um, it's a very big part of my everyday life. Um, a lot of big part of my activism and big part of my political identity. Um, but I'm not, I, w- I wouldn't say I'm particularly religious or anything. I do certain things. I still do Friday night dinner and I'm one of the, um, rare ones, I would say, amongst my friendship group that still does Friday night every week mm. with my parents. Um, we'll light candles and, and have colour and, and wine mm. and, and say the prayers, but we're not, I still wouldn't say we're religious and, you know, I go to synagogue three times a year. Um, mm. and it has various, it's variously meaningful or not meaningful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds like my lapsed Christian family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas, New Year. Yeah. 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 It's interesting how it's, um, it sort of becomes, oh, well, religious, cultural, yeah, that mm. that mix. Um, so that said, that it's it's more than just a faith for you or it is mm. more things than a faith. Um, what is the relationship, if there is one, between your Judaism and your feminism? Yeah, it's a really good question, I think. I think there's lots of ways in which there is a relationship. I guess one of the better examples of it is in a synagogue that 
me and my family choose to go to. Um, so we grew up going to a um, Orthodox synagogue. Most mm-hmm. of the Jews in Melbourne go to an Orthodox synagogue, and in Orthodox Judaism, I mean, it wasn't. It was um, not, you know, a particularly particularly religious. Well, we weren't particularly religious, but this is just kind of the synagogue that most people go to is. So the men and women sit separately. The women um, in the synagogue were upstairs, like in, in most Orthodox synagogues um, in Melbourne. Women are upstairs and they don't participate in the service. They can pray along, but they don't participate. Um, they don't lead the service in any way. Um, they're observers. And mostly the women's area is um, women chatting and not participating in the prayer at all. Right. Um, and at times, I went through a period when, at the start of uni, where I was like, oh, it's cool, it's like women's space, and it's cool to have this, you know, separate spaces, and that felt comfortable for a moment. Um, but then I guess as my feminism developed, and I thought more critically, and I was just like, this is bullshit, mm. and why would I accept this kind of non-participation in something that I actually really want to participate in? Um and that wasn't the only reason. There were other familial reasons. We were all kind of unhappy with that synagogue anyway. But so we ended up, we've changed. So we now attend a stream of Judaism that's called, it's called conservative Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually, it's egalitarian. Um, it's ostensibly everyone is equal and participates equally. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, still most of the leadership is are men. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a real problem with synagogues. In Melbourne and in Australia generally is that even the egalitarian ones are largely dominated by men. Mm-hmm. Um, but that equal participation and the, and the prospect of equal participation was really important to me. Yeah. And it was it became a sense of I need to merge my Jewish religious practice and my feminist politics. Mm. And now whenever I go to an Orthodox synagogue for a family event or for a, you know, a bar mitzvah or a wedding call up or something, I just can't stand it. It's yeah. deeply uncomfortable. Um, I hate it. It's real. It feels like a real political compromise. Mm. Um, and and it also makes me so sad that this is what women are participating in. And you go to a Orthodox wedding and the woman doesn't speak. And I see, like, you know, these people who I know, these women who speak very well for themselves, <laughs> but don't speak at their weddings. And, and I think it's ridiculous. It's, yeah... So I guess that kind of ways which, yeah, I think that's a good example of how I meld mm. my feminist. But I think also, I mean, there's just in every way it's melted because I am both a feminist and Jewish. And yeah. so 100% when I'm in feminist spaces, um, you know, I notice when things are on a Friday night. Um, and we had a, when I was women's officer at the Student Union at Melbourne Uni, um, sorry, this is a very long answer. No, um, no, this is fascinating. The, you know, there's Reclaim the Night, and f- mm. for a while it wasn't on Friday nights, and then it was on Friday nights, and when I was women's officer, you know, I pushed that it shouldn't be on a Friday night, mm. that, and not just because I couldn't attend, but because, you know, it's structural discrimination. It's mm, excluding yeah. a group of people, and and now it's back to Friday nights, um, and I think, you know, it's a real shame um, when those sorts of things happen. And I know that there's always going to be people who are excluded. Like there's no, you can't find a time for anything that fits everyone in. But it's those questions of who are we excluding and who are we regularly excluding. And and I guess 
my Jewishness means that I'm more awake to that question um, of, in general, who are we excluding when we organise events, um, yeah. when we talk about feminism, you know, what is the quality of the, in this town, often very white feminism um, that's going on, um, and how can we fight against that? Mm. Wow. That was a great <laughs> No, <Yeah>. I, <laughs> um, So that's really interesting. You're, you're talking about, um, you know, the separation of, like, clear separation of male and female bodies in prayer spaces and that sort of thing. Um, I remember watching some young Jewish women getting really frustrated at the Wailing Wall. Mm. Um, <laughs> just really angry at their parents that they couldn't pray yep. with their brothers. And, um, but it, it did make me wonder, and it's something that I've always really wondered, what does Judaism itself say about women's role in society? Like, is this just mm. something that is sort of because there are men in the world, they do this or, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the great things about Jewishness and, and uh, is that it, and its text is that the point of them is the argument. And, you know, we joke like two Jews, three opinions, <laughs> but it's also, I think that's the richness of it. Mm. And the texts are meant to be struggled over and struggled with and you know there is of course um like in any religion or in really mm. anything there's things that are offensive and there's no way of getting around them but um we're always picking and choosing what we believe and what we and what we follow and we're always struggling with those texts and i think judaism isn't inherently anything and you'll find people practicing it in so many different ways and and particularly because jews live all over the world and and have done, you know, for centuries. So they'll, they'll different traditions sprout out, sprout up. Um, mm. So I don't think, yeah, I think patriarchy has flourished within Judaism. Mm. And absolutely the Whaley Wall is a problem that you can't pray, egalitarian prayer isn't allowed. Um, but then there's, yeah, you know, there's, there's groups like Women of the Wall um, mm. who do protest, um, at the at the wall, and they'll because um, according to orthodoxy, Jewish women's voices are not allowed to be heard. So this is the problem. This is why mm. Jew, Jewish the women aren't sorry, women's voices, not just Jewish women. Um, women's voices aren't allowed to be heard in, in prayer or song. So they protest and, and they go monthly and they take out a Torah scroll in and and they pray. And and on the one hand, that's wonderful, but on the other hand, you know, we also need to think, I guess, in that intersectional solidarity way of um, you know, the, the claims they're making for Jewish women's access to mm. that space and not they don't make the same claims for Palestinian women's access mm. to that space. Um, and I think that's really important part of my Jewish feminism is, you know, as I said, like who is excluded and when does my access come at someone else's cost? Yeah. Yeah. God. <laughs> um. Okay, I think this is going to be our last question sure. because I feel like this is a big one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that I'm so fascinated when you talk about is like your historian brain and how mm -hmm. it looks at things. And so I'm interested in what you think about how the contemporary history of Jewish people, so, you know, I'm loath to this word, but the trauma, or the yep. diaspora creation and then creation of a state, um, and then sort of the necessary or inevitable disruption to family structures and people's lives and that sort of thing, whether all of that has had an impact on the role of women and how women are seen in Jewish communities today. 
Yeah, I think we haven't done enough research and thinking about that. Mm. Um, I think, um, obviously, the Holocaust is predominantly a European and North African mm-hmm. experience. Um, so it's certainly not all Jews. There are Jews throughout North Africa and, and, um, and Africa and the Middle East who weren't affected by the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really important. And, and they're often erased and within, by, um, European Jewish communities and Jewish communities in Australia and the US. So I'm definitely, you know, not speaking to a global Jewish experience, mm-hmm. but I think when I look at, you know, Ashkenazi Jews, the European, white European Jews in, in Melbourne, I think we, we haven't fully grappled with the effects of the Holocaust on family structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many, you know, women gave birth really soon after the Holocaust and, and, they gave birth to kids often who had and continue to have real, very real health problems. Mm. Um, and I've heard numerous stories recently about, um, yeah, so my parents' generation, people with, yeah, very real health mm. problems and having to spend, you know, weeks when they're infants or young kids in hospital, mm. um, or the mothers um, having to spend weeks in hospital after giving birth, that their bodies have gone through this massive trauma mm. of five, six years of, um, concentration camps and, and ghettos and starvation and work and, and, um, yeah, that, that to then give birth is, mm. or to then carry a child, a, a fetus and, and give birth is, is a huge thing for that body to then have to do. Um, and I think, you know, there's so many different ways in which families are organized, but there is this very real pressure, um, which I've written about uh, in the past on, on sort of my generation, the third generation, and really the second generation as well, to, you know, marry someone Jewish and have Jewish babies mm. and maintain the lineage and replace the lost. And, mm. you know, one of my respondents when I did a survey of people said, you know, their grandmas would often say, you need to have six kids, one for each million. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> which is... <laughs> Both deeply hilarious and wow, what a what yeah. a burden. Um, I just got goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think you know that pressure um, we haven't fully grappled with and we don't fully understand, and that's I yeah. guess part of my work, and that's what I'm interested in, in studying the histories of sexualities of Australian Jews is thinking about what are what has been the role mm. um, this has played in the ways in which we're living out our lives, um, and I think there's some really interesting things going on. Yeah. Yeah. It almost, I mean, it seems really, after that answer, just reflecting on it, you would almost be the first generation who would be able to even start unpacking that because the previous generation would just be in aftershock mode. Kind yeah. Of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and there's increasing work um, being done by the third generation. So I mm. spoke on a panel um, on Sunday at the Holocaust Museum mm. about, of, it was a film, but then, then we spoke about third generation stuff. There's a lot of interest um, in third generation. And the second generation is also, yeah, um, and has for a while been speaking and thinking about stuff. But mm. yeah, it's definitely increasing. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That was really, really fascinating. Thanks for having me. And, um, and very open. I appreciate you sharing all no. of that with us. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.